Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. I was just going to give you a chance to listen to the rain, get it out of your system, but now it's diminishing. But it sounds nice, doesn't it? Well, just another uh, light passage this morning in the book of James. Uh, we're going to dig in. You know, uh, if you're just joining us, this is the way that we teach here. Here comes, here comes the rain. This is the way we teach here at Fellowship is we take a book of the Bible and we'll just start in verse one, chapter one, we'll, we'll go through the book and we've now arrived in chapter two of James. It's been an intense book. It's gonna stay an intense book. It's very practical. Uh, you know, you either love the book or hate the book is what I find. You know, I had someone uh, earlier share with me, they, they, they see James as sort of like this um, guy walking around with a two by four that says sometimes you need to get hit in the head with a two by four and you might not like it, but you need it. You know, that kind of analogy. And this is what James is giving us. Now, we've been using this illustration of the coin. There are two sides of a coin. There's a faith side and a work side, and we handed these out in the first week. And the faith side says, in God we trust. The work side has these you know, illustrations of American industry on here. And it's just a reminder that you, you can't really separate faith and works if the faith is, gen is a genuine. In fact, I was thinking about this, and I thought, I think James' point is not that you shouldn't separate faith from works. It's that if the faith is right, if the faith is genuine, you cannot. Like you literally cannot. And so his message over and over and over is visible faith is true faith. Active faith, as we're calling our series, active faith is going to show up. You're going to be able to see it. There are no two-sided coins. And really what James is saying, and, and this is kind of hard to hear, here comes the two by four in a way, is, you know, there's no, there's no one-sided coins. I said that wrong. There are no one-sided coins. Like, can you even imagine what a one-sided coin would be? You know, it's, it's a physical impossibility. And James is saying, so if you find yourself holding something that looks like a one-sided coin, you have to ask yourself, what is it that you're really holding? Is it actually faith? And, and this is where it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, James keeps digging and saying, do you actually believe this? Do you, is your faith real? Is it genuine? Or are you just going through the motions? Now, that's the two by four. That's the question of James. Um, he, then, and then he says, listen, if you want to know the answer, if your faith is real, look at your works. Like, don't manufacture works in order to sort of fake it. You can't fake it till you make it. But if you want to know if your faith is genuine and real, you've got to look at your actions. You've got to look at what, what's coming out of your mouth. You know, we talked about that last week. You've got to look at how you steward your resources, how you engage with trials and temptations and all these practical topics that are coming out. In today's text, which you've already heard read, he's saying, here's another test if you want to know if your faith is genuine or not. How do you treat people? And that's a hard one because how you treat people reveals more about what's going on in your heart than almost anything else. So our text is 13 verses. It's one coherent thought through. You're going to see kind of the argument develop. In fact, here's the outline of the text, which is the outline that I'll mirror in the sermon. There's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's an application. <laughs> Problem, solution, application. Let's start with the problem. Look at verse one. Chapter two, verse one. Here's the problem clearly stated. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now notice he's immediately going after the heart. Like he's going after not your external actions. He's going after something internal, an attitude. What's the attitude? Personal favoritism. Let's talk about what that means in this context. First of all, it doesn't just mean, um, 
you know, I've got my uh, people that I really like and personalities that go along with mine, and then other people that I just, you know, I don't go along with them as well, I don't get along with them as well. It's a little deeper than that, it's a little darker than that, a little more sinister than that. The idea of personal favoritism is actually, in this context, the impulse to favor some people over others based on their per- your perceived value of them, based on what you see in them externally that causes you to value or devalue them and you're going to favor some over others. At its core, and this is important, at its core, it is a failure of love. And that's a big deal for Christians because we're called, more than anything else, we're called to love. Love God, love people. If you just do those things, you're doing well. That's what the text is going to say. But, but we have a problem. We, we all have this attitude. Now, right off the bat, you know, it's a personal It's deep, it's heart level, it's an attitude, it's gonna have a physical manifestation. James is basically saying there are two things, verse one, that should not go together. They really cannot go together. And that is faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and this inward, sinful, selfish attitude of dividing people up and characterizing them by how much value they're gonna add to you and then treating them differently. It's discrimination, it's prejudice, it's all of this. Now, if it's true that an inward attitude is going to inevitably have an outward expression, he's going to give an example of one way that this can play out externally. So this is verse two now. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, okay, that was a symbol of wealth in that day. Nowadays, most of us have rings, but not in that day. And dressed in fine clothes. And there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes. Verse three, and you pay special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. It's like you get the front row seat. And you say to the poor man, stand over there. You know, it's kind of like we're shoving him to the side or even sit down. Like there's no more seats. Sorry, you got to sit down by my footstool. Verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see, judges divide things. A good judge will rightly divide This is evil judgments that God is calling out. Evil motives, you've become judges of people. Now, on the surface, we all would say, man, I would never do that, you know? You know, if a a wealthy guy came in driving some fancy car, wearing a fancy watch, you know, I'm not gonna say, you come sit right up here in the front. And a poor man, we're not gonna have him sit on the floor, you know? So it's hard to connect with this example at first. But remember, James is talking about an inner attitude, which is a heart condition. He's calling out a failure to love. And he gives this example, but he could have used any number of examples. Now, here's what you might think when you hear the word failure to love. You might think they loved the rich man. They did not love the poor man. I don't think that's true. I don't think they loved either one. Not really. Because they treated both only according to their external stuff. So it's like the rich guy, they don't, I mean, they don't know him yet, but they're treating him based on his wealth. Those of you that have some resources, you know, do you like people to only see you for your wealth? To only see you for what you can bring to them or what they might want from you? It's not love. Of course, they didn't love the poor man either. They only see his poverty. They don't see his heart. They don't see what's inside. They don't see his need that he's brought into that worship. All, all they see is the external stuff. They're like, oh, you don't matter. Go sit over there. You see, it's, it, what's going on in, inside is a heart level. It's a failure of love. Now, here's the deeper problem. Okay, this is how I'll express it. James is unearthing this deeper problem. Here it is. Apart from a transformed heart, 
Our interactions with people will be selfish rather than loving. We will treat them according to our perceived value of them rather than according to their inherent value as human beings made in the image of God. We do this in all kinds of ways, subtly and overtly. It's, it's in us, okay? And no one thinks we do this because no one sees their own prejudice. But we do this. And the, the step one to changing is acknowledging this is in me. It is. It is in me. I'm naming this as one of your pastors. Okay, now some of you, you wouldn't discriminate based on rich and poor. You're going to discriminate based on color. Or you're going to discriminate based on, you know, ethnicity. You're going to discriminate based on um, their political persuasion or, you know, socioeconomic. Well, that's exactly this example. But we all have different kinds of ways. And everybody says, oh, I'm not biased. I'm not racist. I'm not, I don't discriminate in that way. You got you to examine the heart, which is exactly what this text wants to do. All right. Now, why did the church members discriminate between these two? This is really interesting, and this will help us get to our own hearts. It's value perception. A wealthy guy might put something in the offering plate. Or even if he doesn't, don't we like, like to all be associated with wealthy people? You know, rich, powerful people. Like, it makes us feel better about ourselves. The poor guy, though, he doesn't have anything to offer. He's not going to put anything in the offering plate. In fact, if I let him sit next to me, by the time I get out of here, I might feel like I have to talk to him, and then he might tell me his need, and then I might feel like I've got to give him something, and then pretty soon he might want to hang out, and he might suck away resources and time from me. He's a needy person. I don't want to get wrapped up in that. I'm just going to keep my distance. I'm not going to kick him out, but he's not going to sit by me. See how subtle this is in our own hearts? We do this. We interact with people based on what they can do for us. Sometimes we interact with people based on what they might do to us. You know, fear goes this way too. It's like, well, that, that guy might move me backwards. He might suck resources from me or he might make me associate him with the wrong people. And this is all usually just subconscious subtle. All right, we tend to treat people according to our perceived value for them rather than loving them as human beings made in the image of God. Like, if, if you can just name that, that that is in you in your fallen state. And we'll talk about the fact that we can grow past it through the gospel. We'll talk about that. But right now, if you can just name that that is in you in your fallen state, then the Spirit of God is speaking through this text to you this morning already. Now, here's where it gets deep for me. Look closely at your heart, and you'll find that this is the basic economics of all of your relationships. It's not natural to love someone unselfishly. It's just not. It's not natural to love someone unconditionally. You are wired, I am wired to engage with them based on our needs rather than their needs, based on self-protection rather than love. That's your starting place. And that still becomes your default, okay, in your flesh. Scripture would say this over and over in various ways. This is a good example. Uh, let me give you two illustrations just from my own experience, in my own life, and my own experience. The first uh, relates to my old job. You know, I used to work at Chick-fil-A, and part of what I did at the corporate office, I did a lot of training. And I, I, I've been doing that even after I left Chick-fil-A. I kept doing it um, as a contract instructor. And, and one of the things I would train a lot is I would train the owner-operators of the restaurants how to think about customer service. You know, Chick-fil-A is different in, in certain ways. And one of those ways is customer service feels different. When you walk in a Chick-fil-A restaurant, if it's done right, it doesn't feel like a normal fast food restaurant in terms of the people, in terms of the service. Why is that? Have you ever asked yourself? Why is that? Is it just because they're closed on Sundays so they all have a little more rest and they're a little more happy to be there? No, that's not most of it. Uh, maybe part of it. Here's, here's why it is. They're trained to see you as a person, not a transaction. 
That's what we would beat into their heads, like lovingly and gently. We would train them this way. So in other words, when I would do service training, I'd say, listen, you got customers coming in their doors all throughout the day. Do not see them as just another $10 bill, another $20 bill, another $5 bill. Also, you know, so in other words, don't see them as just a profit. Don't see them as just, you know, what's in it for me? You've got other customers coming in your room and they're problems, Right? They're bringing like a mom with three kids or screaming. She can't make up her mind. She's ready to pull her hair out and she's yelling and causing a commotion. Don't see them just as a problem. So they're not a prophet nor they're a problem. That's both transactional thinking. You know what they are? People with a story. And so we would train every life has a story. We made a video about that. We would just like, that's the secret sauce of Chick-fil-A. It's not actually the Chick-fil-A sauce, you know, although that's pretty awesome. But <laughs> it's this. And so you walk in a Chick-fil-A restaurant, it feels different. Hopefully when it's done right, you get eye contact, you get a my pleasure, you get a smile. If you need help, you get assistance. Why is that? They're trained to see you as a person, not as a transaction. Now, let me give you another example. This ex next example is uh, revealing of my own heart, and it also is going to help us see that we tend to treat all of our relationships transactionally rather than relationally. We, even our marriages, even our kids, even our everything. Let's talk about uh, premarital counseling, okay? I get an opportunity to do that from time to time as a pastor here in other churches that I've been at, and here's what happens. I'll sit with a couple madly in love, deeply in love, like that's just where they are. They want to get married, right? You don't get the couples coming in that's saying, you know, we want to get married, but we hate each other, you know? You get the couples coming in saying, oh, we just love each other. We found the one for us. We want to get married. And just getting to know them, I'll ask them this question. Why do you want to marry him? And I'll look at the guy, and I'll be like, why do you want to marry her? And it's not a trick question. I'm mostly just getting to know them, but here's what they'll say. Like, uh, the guy's always gonna say the same thing. She's beautiful. Like, and then he's like, I, I gotta come up with something else too. He's like, uh, she's really good with kids, you know, or she's, you know. What, what he's really saying is, like, she makes me feel great. Because if a beautiful woman wants to be with me, that's what I need. That's what I've longed for. Let's, let's talk about the lovely lady sitting next to him on the couch. And why do you want to marry him? Oh, he's just a godly man, you know. Oh, he just, uh, he's so considerate of me. He's so patient. See, he's got her fooled. At this point, right? The truth's coming out later, okay? But here's what she's saying. She's saying that this guy that has it all together, or at least that's the story I'm telling myself, he's got it all together. This guy that has it all together wants to be with me. There must be something of value deep in me. Now, this is not wrong. Like, I'm not throwing stones at it. This is just where they are. This is where we all start. This is where Jody and I were 18 years ago. In fact, here's the personal part of the story. I remember when we were engaged, we were trying to choose a song for our first dance. And uh, we, anyway, we were thinking about these different country songs. We ended up going with The Safe Christian Choice, I Will Be Here by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yes. Now, but among the other considerations was this country song we really liked at the time, sung by John Michael Montgomery, I Love the Way You Love Me. I've talked about the song before in here because it's such a good illustration of this kind of transactional love. Think about the lyrics of that song, those of you that know it. I like the way you, you know, do this. I like the way you do that. I like the way you do that. It's this sweet song. And it gets to the chorus. But I love the way you love me. Those are some of the most honest lyrics ever written. One of the truest love songs ever written. 
I love the way you love me. Now listen to what he's saying without even thinking about it. I love you for me, not I love you for you. That's transactional love. I wouldn't even call it love at that point, but that's where you start. That's the basic economics of all your relationships. Now, James has identified this problem. It's a deep inner attitude that has, it manifests itself in tons of ways, not just this one example. This is not just a sermon about how to treat poor people in our church. It's deeper than that. It include, includes that. includes all kinds of other biases and, and discrimination as well, but, but it's deeper. It's a heart problem. He's going to go on to explain why this is a big problem. Look at 5 to 7. Here we go. Listen, my brother, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Keep it on that verse for a second. Here's what he's essentially saying. The reason this is a big problem is because God's values don't match your values. You know, you're not reflecting the image of your creator. God doesn't see what you see. Hasn't he chosen the poor people? Like, aren't they special to him in certain ways? We'll come back to that. Now look at verse six. But you've dishonored the poor man. And you've done the opposite of what God has done. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Now he's saying, and think about it. The rich aren't, aren't treating you well. From their perspective, you're the per poor person and they're discriminating against you. You see this? It's so interesting. Look at verse seven. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? It was the wealthy people in that day and time that were saying, oh, those needy Christians, you know, their faith is a crutch because they don't have resources. Isn't this interesting? Put verse five back on the screen, if you will. This is a key verse in this. Uh, I want to read you um, the first line of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think James had this in mind when he wrote this. Now, he doesn't say, you know, poor in spirit. He says poor of this world. And in the context, he's talking about economic poverty. Well, what do you, what do, you do with that? Well, let, let's, talk, let's talk about this. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to understand your own moral and spiritual poverty. That you are bankrupt apart from grace. That you have nothing to bring to the table. You are needy. Your moral insides, your spiritual insides are rags on your own. That's what spiritual poverty is. Now, here's something interesting. Let's connect it to economic poverty. Did you know, and this is just an historic fact, historically and in modern times, the gospel tends to flourish in economic, economically poor places? Even to this day, if you look at a map of where the gospel is growing, and this has been true for 2,000 years, it is not in first world countries. It is not primarily where the money's at. Now, of course, there are rich people who follow Jesus. Absolutely. But primarily, globally and historically, it's in economically down places, poor places, impoverished places where the gospel flourishes. Why is that? Because poor people are aware of their neediness and it's not a very big step for them from economic poverty to poverty of spirit. It's like, I'm needy. Like, I don't have things. I need to cry out for help and I've learned how to ask for help. So they say, guess what? You're also spiritually impoverished. Okay, I believe it. God help me, forgive me. I'm a mess, I'm a wreck. Let's talk about the rich person. Rich people, they've got it together in a lot of areas of their lives. You know, they know they're not perfect, but it's harder for them to see their own spiritual depravity, their own, their own uh, true inner bare naked bankruptcy. 
Uh, I think it's interesting, even the phrase independently wealthy, which is kind of all of our economic goal, all right? Even buried in that phrase is this sense, you know, this, I don't, I don't, literally means I don't need anyone to give me anything. I don't even need a job. I have what I need on my own. Now, it's one thing for that to be a goal from a material standpoint. That, that might be fine. You know, that's between you and God. But it's very easy for independence to become an identity, which can then just subtly flow over into other areas of your life, like your spiritual life. It's like, I, there are some needy people around me, and I'm not one of them. You know, like, yeah, most people are needy, but I'm, I'm kind of in that top 5%, okay? Listen, th- this is out of love for you as I put my pastor, ha- pastor hat on like James. Listen, my beloved brethren. Listen, my beloved br- brothers and sisters. Without poverty of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is like, you know how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why is that? Well, he's so used to being independent, it's hard for him to see his own need and cry out in desperation for a savior. I'm needy, I'm spiritually bankrupt, help me, God. Without poverty of spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that? Do you believe that? All this is saying is that economically poor people have an easier time making that connection by and large. But when you, oh rich people, I'm putting myself in this category because we're all relatively wealthy compared to many in this world. When we, oh rich people, when we understand our true poverty, our inner poverty, and not only understand it, but embrace it, then anytime you see an outwardly poor person, you feel like you're looking in a mirror. And you're like, dude, I look like that too on the inside. You see, apart from what God has done in my life, apart from the beautiful handout that I received in my rags, I'm desperate. And so seeing your own inner condition in the external circumstances of someone that you believe has nothing to offer you will change the way you interact with them. Like, you can no longer discriminate. You can no longer say, you don't matter, because you're saying that I don't matter either, you see. Now, we're moving from the problem to the solution. Let me connect it to the text. So part one, problem. You have a heart problem in the way you love people. Part two, solution. We're getting into it, but let me show it to you in the text, verses eight to 11. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. We're going to come back to that verse because it's really important, but let me finish the next few verses. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. All right, now hold off on verse 10 for just a second. At this point, you're like, okay, fine, but, but partiality is not really something that I massively struggle with, and even if I do, is it really that big a deal? Now listen to verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. He's saying, listen, just a little bit of discriminatory attitude in you, you, you're guilty of the law. In verse 11, he's going to demonstrate that. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. You know, here's what he's doing with that weird example at the end of murder. And you're like, where did murder and adultery come from? Here's what he's saying. He's using the extreme example of adultery and murder to illustrate the absurdity of inconsistent obedience. So nobody who's got blood on their hands as a murderer is gonna take pride in the fact that they're not an adulterer. 
It was not like, I'm great. I'm a great guy. You know, I murdered a few people, but I've never cheated on my wife. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. It makes us want to laugh. And so what he's saying is, listen, if you have just a little bit of this attitude in your heart, you're guilty of the whole law. You feel the weight of that? The problem with the law is the law is all or nothing. Theologically, that's how this works. Now, we're going to come back, come back to that idea, but first let's focus one more time on verse 8. It might be a key verse in the whole passage. Here's the solution, James is saying. Fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the opposite of transactional relationships. That's true love, to love them like you love themselves. In other words, he's saying this, when you love other people with the same measure of focus and energy and and care that you give to yourself, the heart problem goes away. Why? Because this kind of love leaves no room for viewing people as selfish transactions. To truly love someone like this starts with the understanding that they're not a means to your end. Men, your wives are not a means to your end. You know, and you say easily, we say, of course she's not, of course she's not. I'm speaking to your hearts here. Women, your husband is not a means to your end. Your kids, your grandchildren, not a means to your end. Single folks, the dream of one day finding the right one and being married, a person's not a means to your end. We could go on and on. Now, the wonderful thing about this solution, love your neighbor as yourself, is it's utterly impossible for you to do apart from a changed heart. Do you know that? Really understanding the command to love your neighbor as yourself will completely strip you of all your so-called spiritual independence. It'll strip you of your pride if you really understand it. Because then you're like, oh my goodness, even the good things I've done in my life out of the name of love, they've been selfishly motivated. Oh, you mean my righteous acts are as filthy rags? Yes, indeed. You're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. Let me tell you when I learned this about me. I was in my 30s. I was in my early 30s and I was at seminary to become a pastor. And I was struggling a lot of different ways. It was sort of a crisis of faith in a way, but it was showing up in my relationship with Jody and it was just showing up and like, I was second guessing myself. Why am I even here? Am I here for all the wrong motives? And there's some areas of sin in my life that I can't even figure out. How am I supposed to preach the gospel if I'm dirty and I didn't fully understand grace. I mean, I, I was a believer. I, genu- I was genuinely a believer, but I hadn't let the message of grace really penetrate and be like a, a grenade inside my heart. And I was not in a great place, and God led me to a man named Bruce Edstrom, who was a wonderful Christian counselor in the Dallas area. Bruce, two things about Bruce you would want to know. Bruce loves Jesus, and Bruce loved me. And I would sit with him in his office, and I remember the first three or four or five sessions just sort of getting after the heart issues. And we were talking about this idea of love and, and how I, I tend to treat people, even my wife, um, even when I'm treating her kindly, it's so that I can get something from her. And, you know, and, and, and honestly, y'all, I'm, I, I've never been a bad husband, okay? But, but God was laying bare the inner motivations of my heart 
that were not love. And uh, I remember showing up at Bruce's office, and I started the session this way. This is maybe the sixth or seventh time I'd met with him, and I said, Bruce, I'm coming to see that I don't know if I've ever actually loved anyone in my life. And I was expecting and honestly hoping that Bruce would say, Rob, don't beat yourself up. You're only human. Or you're not as bad as you think. Or yeah, that's everybody. Instead, he gave me something more wonderful. He looked at me and with literal tears in his eyes and a smile on his face, He said, you are starting to understand love. And you are starting to understand your need for Jesus. Seminary student, finally understanding my need for Jesus. Praise God. Now, genuine love's the solution, men and women. The problem Yet again, is genuine love's not in you. Genuine love comes only through genuine faith in Jesus, which takes us to our application. Final point, verse 12, application. So, like, therefore, in light of all this, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this is, there's beauty here, okay? What is the law of liberty? Well, Lloyd talked about this a bit last week in his text because it showed up there too, but it could be translated the law that sets you free. What is the law that sets you free? Well, it starts by saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So if he fulfilled the law for you, then the law can actually set you free. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to complete it, to fulfill it. Like it is finished on the cross. Now, this is where the faith side of the coin begins to transform the works side of the coin. I want you to literally pull out your coin if you have it. Not all of you do. Some of you do. If you don't have it, that's okay. You know, you don't need to feel shame about that. I didn't have mine. I had to get one, another one today. Don't tell. <laughs> pull it out if you have it. Or maybe you have another coin, or maybe you just want to look at my coin. But this will mean more to you if you actually see this with a coin. Turn it to the faith side. In God we trust. This is the faith side. I want you to look at the faith side as I'm talking about this, okay? What does it mean to have faith? Professing faith in Jesus starts with putting your trust in his law-keeping not in your own attempts to keep the law. It starts with putting your trust in his unconditional love. He's the only one that could love his neighbor as himself fully. Rather than in your own attempts to manufacture that kind of love which have always failed you. It starts with recognizing your own spiritual poverty and then receiving the gift of his spiritual riches in place of your rags. Now, here's why this sets you free, and here's why this began to set me free in in my counselor's office. Because what is your deepest core desire? You might put a lot of different labels on it, you know. I just don't want to be alone. I want to be known. I want to be successful. I want to be, you know, whatever your deepest core desire is, you know what it actually is? You just want to be loved for you. Not for your stuff not for your talent, not for your beauty, 
not for your abilities, not for your goodness. You know all that stuff's just skin deep. You want to be loved for you. You want to be accepted. You want to be received. You want to be chosen for you. The gospel says that's exactly what happened. The gospel says that is true about you, that in your spiritual rags, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You didn't have to clean up and earn stuff and get all spiritually wealthy. In fact, Jesus says, no, I didn't come for the people that see themselves that way. I came for the needy. I came for the spiritually poor people. Now, actually believing this kind of love will transform you and it will begin to transform your love. But until you get this, until you actually really believe that you are loved that way, your love will never be whole. It'll always be partial. It'll always be selfish because you're like walking around with an empty bucket. Every person you come in contact with, it's just like, fill my bucket, fill my bucket, love me. Give me a little bit of affirmation. See my beauty, see my talents, see my goodness and fill my cup. You will only be able to interact with people selfishly if that's your mindset. But once you see that your cup has actually been filled, that God has given you this gift, that will transform you. I love the way D. Edmund Hebert put it, a Bible commentator. This is so good. The command to love your neighbor as yourself marks a standard that is impossible to realize apart from the indwelling love of Christ in the believer. I love that phrase, the indwelling love of Christ. That's what you have to have. Hebert is saying the only way you will actually love people is to truly receive God's love for you. Do you know the indwelling love of Christ in you? I don't mean just intellectually. I mean experientially. Do you know that love? That's the faith side of the coin. It's not some mental assent to some theological doctrine. That's a starting place. But to believe it means to know the love of Christ is yours. Now turn the coin over. This is the work side. Notice it's the other side of the good news. It's the other side of the gospel. James is saying, so speak and act. Like, like let it flow out of you, all right? The faith is gonna become works, i.e., through your speech and through your actions. As those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, here's the big idea of the passage. If you've been snoozing, you can wake up now because here it is. Big idea. Love others with the love you've been given yourself. If you don't believe the love you've been given yourself, you'll never love others. Love others with the love you've been given yourself. Let your outward actions toward others reflect a new inward reality. And then I've got to close with this because it's the last verse in our text and, and, and I wouldn't be loving you well if I didn't allow the weightiness of verse 13 to fall on you. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, here's the weightiness of this verse. James is saying the way you love people is like a CT scan of your heart that will reveal what's actually there. The way you love people, particularly those that you see as below you in some way, like this congregation saw the poor guy, the way you treat the people that you see as below you or they can't add value to you, the way you treat those people 
is like a CT scan of your heart. If you want to know the state of your heart, James is saying, then look at how you love people. If you want to know if your faith is genuine, look at how you love people. You see, this is the two by four. This is it. But there's some beautiful grace in it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you have felt convicted this morning in your lack of love, in your failure to love, in your relationships of any kind, and I hope you have, then here's your opportunity to throw yourself down at the mercy of Christ. Mercy triumphs. That's a perfect posture to receive grace. Throw yourself down at the mercy of Christ and you will get it. You will get mercy. You will receive grace. You will. All it takes is a posture of need. All it takes is some spiritual poverty. All it takes is some spiritual humility. Some of you in this room have been going through the motions of faith. And I I wouldn't care about you if I didn't say this. You've actually never been transformed by genuine faith in Christ. Like you know the right answers to, to fill in some of the Sunday school questions, but you've actually never been transformed by the love of Christ and genuine belief in that. I'm gonna give you an opportunity this morning to do that. Many of you in the room, you have put your faith in Christ and it's genuine, but what this text has revealed to you is you still have a long way to go. Praise God, own your spiritual poverty and throw yourself down at the judgment seat of Christ and you will receive mercy. And guess what? It'll be that sense of grace that will begin to transform how you love other people. You won't see poor people the same anymore. You won't see people of different ethnicity the same anymore. You won't see your own spouse the same anymore when you understand the grace that you've received. So we're gonna close with the Lord's Supper. Why? Because this is a tangible way that you can receive grace this morning. The bread and the cup is symbolic, yes, but it's symbolic of what you most need, the indwelling love of Christ in you, the love that was unconditional, the love that was sacrificial because yours is not. You have a chance to receive that this morning. And so the table is gonna be open today for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. And for the first time today or for the 10,000th time today, if you're willing to to come up with, with your spiritual bankruptcy and your spiritual poverty and just say, I need, I need Jesus, then his body and his blood is for you. But if you don't need him, Stay where you are this morning. Don't come forward for the table. And there's no shame in that. No one's gonna point fingers. Just use this time to pray and ask God, God, if if all this is true, if all this is real, would you give me the faith to believe it? That'd be a great prayer. Some of you are gonna come forward for the first time this morning, and that's exciting. Here's how it's gonna work. We're gonna have a station on the right and the left and two stations in the center. And as soon as I pray for us, as soon as I say amen, I'm gonna go ahead and ask you to start coming forward. So if you're one of the servers, why don't you go ahead and get in position right now? Let me pray for us. And we're gonna come forward and receive the elements together this morning. Father, you're a good God and you have seen fit to give us the word of God, which oftentimes falls heavy on us. You know, scripture talks about the word of God being like a double-edged sword. Like it pierces us. It like cuts through the the skin, the, the flesh, even the bone down into the inner parts of us. And what is always revealed there is neediness because we were made to be needy. And that's actually beautiful if we will acknowledge our need and look to you to fill it. Another way 
Father, to say this is we're thirsty. We're hungry. We thirst after righteousness. We hunger after righteousness. And so the table is open to us this morning through the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. And we give thanks for that in the name of Christ. Amen. So come down. You'll take a wafer. You'll dip it in the cup. And then you'll go ahead and eat it. And this song will be played over us as we worship this way. Let's come. Come.